This is Paul. Welcome to the Things I Didn't Learn in School podcast. For those of you that are newer to these conversations, the podcasts are one of three things that Still Press puts out. There's also a weekly essay that comes out on Substack. You can sign up for either the free or the paid versions on my website, paulpodolsky.com. And there's also a book, Raising a Thief, and another one, Master Minion. And if you enjoy these conversations, I think that you will enjoy the books and the essays as well. And so with that, thanks for listening, and let's get into our conversation. My guest today is Jay Midsmeyer, who is a student and an expert in something that probably most of you have never heard of or really paid that much attention to is shipping. And I think it's going to be a fascinating conversation. So Jay, welcome to Things I Didn't Learn in School. Hey, thanks, Paul. I appreciate you having me and I'm excited to be on here and talk about shipping. <laughs> so before we jump into shipping, talk a little bit about who you are. So most of my guests will have no, no clue. A very, very narrow sliver will know who you are, but most of them won't. Yeah, well, that's exciting because I'm happy to bring uh, shipping industry uh, knowledge and discussion to, I guess, the masses today. Um, but my background is in maritime shipping equity research. So I run a boutique research firm and we sell subscription research to hedge funds, family offices, uh, retail traders, investors, uh, the whole gamut of sorts. Uh, I've been publishing on Seeking Alpha now since 2011. So, wow, uh, going on uh, 12 years here. And we've hosted Value Investors Edge, which is our business, our research business, on that platform since 2015. So going on eight years of selling the research and doing that sort of product. Uh, personally, um, I have a background in economics and public policy, and I'm currently a PhD candidate at the Harvard Kennedy School, where I'm studying sanctions and their impacts on trade flows. It's a fascinating field, and it is, and it's rich, but it's also niche. So can you even back up even further, like, where did you grow up? Who were Bob and Dad? How did you get so hooked up on shipping? I had a very interesting childhood, I guess I would say. I, my parents were a little bit older when they had me, so and I was an only child. Uh, made that decision later in life to, to have kids, and, and I came along. And what that meant was when I was seven or eight, my parents, my, my dad was a plumber, uh, plumbing mm-hmm. heating. Mm-hmm. And he had his own business, but it was really just him and, and sometimes one or two employees, so kind of a mm-hmm. small business. Really frugal sort of folks, so they're the ones who taught me my basic financial sense, I, I suppose. Um, but when I was younger, they, my dad was already sort of, I guess you could say semi-retired. Yep. Um, he would work eight, nine months a year and he would start to have back problems and so on. Anyways, that involved some traveling and some uh, uh, sort of uh, two homes, if you will. I, I spent my summers in Anchorage, Alaska and uh-huh. I spent my winters in the middle of nowhere in rural Arizona, sort of in, uh-huh. a, in an RV, in a motorhome. My parents are frugal. So this was like a, a 1975 Beater mm-hmm. motorhome. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think all the traveling and being on the road and seeing all the trains and the trucks and as a little kid, always being curious about what's in there, where are things going? I, I think that fostered sort of a love of logistics and or just a curiosity. Uh-huh. What, what was going on with this stuff, you know? And I, you know, I there was these boxes that would say Costco, C-O-S-C-O. Yeah. Right? But that wasn't, it was spelled wrong. It wasn't the Costco that we went to as a family. And so I realized that was a Chinese, that was from China. And that, and that was back in, um, early 2000s, when U.S.-China trade was really just starting to kick off. Mm-hmm. And so we would start to see all these Korean um, boxes on the railroads, all these Chinese boxes, Japanese logos. And so even though I was in the middle of nowhere, in a desert in Arizona, I was exposed to just seeing you know the railroad cars every couple hours. Yeah. Always curious. So I think that stuck with me. That's what I, that's what I think happened. Yep. <laughs> I'm kind of introspecting you know, 20 years back. 
Um, but I think that when I went to college and I started studying economics, I think it all just kind of clicked. And I think that sort of hidden uh, curiosity sort of blossomed into this uh, academic agenda and, and uh, financial research agenda. I get that. You know, I grew up in uh, Washington, D.C., as regular listeners know, and there were embassies from all over, like my, my parents, were, my dad worked for the government, it wasn't anything fancy, but there were embassies from all over the world. And I remember staring at the embassies and being like, where are these people all from? What does their home country look like? And I would literally go look at the atlas and try and put two and two together. And then also when I was in college, was very much trying to understand that world. Okay, so I get trying to understand global trade and seeing that and trying to understand economics. And I also understand that if you're growing up in, in, in more limited circumstances, being very curious about money, that makes a lot of sense too. But then how'd you get from that jump from there to shipping specifically? Yeah, well, the shipping stocks, it's funny because you know it all comes together. But as I was going through college, I was always curious about- Where'd finances. you go to college? Uh, US Air Force Academy, Colorado Springs. Okay. So did you serve too? I, yeah, uh, it was active duty Air Force, and you can see the the pictures behind me. Now, now it's beginning to make sense. Okay, so you got to slow yeah. down and get this. So you go from so you go from you finish high school in Alaska, uh, actually in Arizona. In Arizona, uh, split, okay. Split the time. Yep, yep. All right, and then you go on. Then you go directly to the Air Force Academy. That's right. I was seventeen. I didn't know what I was getting into. I didn't know anything about the military whatsoever. Uh -huh. uh, my my grandfather. How did you pick World the military? You, you know, I. My parents always instilled sort of that frugality in me that, you know, I was going to pay for school or I was going to earn scholarships or yep. work or, or whatnot. And, you know, my junior, senior year, I was doing well in high school and, and I became more interested in, in, in college and, and going on further. And the financial realities were hitting me, yeah. you know, and, and my parents at that point were semi-retired, but keep in mind, we lived in a beater motor home in a fifth right. wheel, but we were in that sort of bracket where, you know, I didn't qualify for like Pell Grants. Um, but they didn't have any money to send me to like Harvard or MIT or something like yep. that. And I learned about the Air Force Academy and I realized that it was a fully paid four-year university. They actually paid you like, <laughs> I mean, it's like 200 bucks, but they paid you like a stipend to go there. Uh, there was a guaranteed job afterwards. Mm -hmm. And keep in mind, this was, it was 2007. Makes total sense. I had, I had, I had a guy, Lieutenant General Mark Hurtling, you might've seen on CNN. He was on here and he met the same same attitude about the military was like a, such an obvious path for him. Yeah, it was. And, and keep in mind, this was 2007 when I was searching for these schools and it was 2008 when I was committing and graduating yep. high school and going. So right in the middle of the GF's uh, global financial crisis and, you know, to have a free education, uh, a guaranteed job. And, you know, I, I you know, I could wax and wane polit uh, patriotism and, and all that. And, and of course, there, you know, my grandfather served in World War II. So there's some of that. Um, but at the end of the day, it was just an amazing opportunity for a 17-year-old kid, right, from rural Arizona. When you were serving, what you what was your focus? What were you doing? Um, so at the academy, I, I studied economics, and then uh -huh. immediately afterwards, I was super, super fortunate. I had the ability to go pursue my master's directly out of the Air Force Academy. So I went to the University of Maryland College Park and lived uh -huh. in D.C. and saw uh -huh. all the embassies. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that was a great experience as a young lieutenant. And I was able to spend a summer as an intern at the White House Council of Economic Advisors. Oh, cool. And yeah. And that was, that was just an amazing gig. And I worked with such talented other young men and women from great universities. And, and I was definitely the dumbest one in the room, but it was such a great opportunity. And so it was, it was a really academic 
I mean, there was military training and all that sort of thing, but it was a really academic six years. Did you ever fly or do anything? So uh, after that, after my master's, thankfully they let me just do school. I mean, yes. that was, that was great. I had to report in once in a while and wear a uniform once in a while, but it was, it was pretty relaxed. Um, after that, I went to pilot training uh-huh. and I went to what's called Euro-NATO joint jet pilot training in Texas. Uh-huh. And so I'm with students from Denmark and Italy and all this stuff. And uh, I'm not sure if you can see it over my shoulder there. It's a T6 uh, Texan two. I don't know if I can move my chair, uh-huh. um, but I flew that in pilot training and I'll just be honest. I was not that great <laughs> at uh, flying formation and, and flying 10 feet off the wing of another aircraft. What are the special skills that are required for that? For, I mean, I've always admired that type of thing, and it seems terrifying. Yeah, well, it's a lot of things, because it, it, it's, it's kind of a mixture of, of quick mental acuity, right? Uh-huh. But it's also hand-eye coordination, right? Flying stick and rudder. Yep. Um, it's, it's task management, uh, being able to manage the load saturation of hearing eight or nine different radio calls in your ear and trying to figure out where every single plane is, having that ability to create like a virtual 3D mental map of your airspace. Uh-huh. And I was just honest to God, I was just overloaded. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, uh, but I did okay with the mental mapping and that sort of thing, but throwing a hand eye coordination on it. I mean, I played a lot of sports in high school, but that's because right. I went to a small school. Um, yeah. I've always been a little bit more, you know, goofy guy and stuff. So I, I you know, pilot training was tough. Yep. Um, and it got to a point and I mean, God bless them. I mean, they supported me. They were great. They let me stay there for a long time, but after about a year, um, it, it became clear that I wasn't going to be a fighter pilot. Yep. And so I got, we'll say this politely, I got revectored uh-huh. <laughs> into RPAs, into drones. Uh-huh. And so then I went to training for that and I flew the MQ-1 Predator and the MQ-9 Reaper for about four years after that. Based out of? Uh, that's in Las Vegas, north of Las Vegas. It's called Creech Air Force Base. So this is, you're flying these things over Iraq or where are you? Um, yeah, I don't really talk about, you know, where we were flying them specifically. Okay. Um, but the time frame, uh, if you think about the global events going on at the time, uh, you think a lot about like ISIS and things like that. So yeah, that was yeah. that time. Of, so this that, is that 2000, frame. what, 2000, what years this is this? It's like 14, 15, 16, 17, those, those sorts of things. You got it. You can put yep. two and two together. Okay. Yep. The um, And it's, I think though that uh, one thing that's very smart about what you've done is I used to feel a lot of discomfort in the things that I was bad at, which is a long, long list of things. But with age, I begin to realize that it's actually great, those things that you're, mm-hmm. because it's almost like, it's like you bump into a barrier. Mm-hmm. And the question is, is, can you get around that barrier or is it really an immovable barrier? Absolutely. And if it's a movable barrier, like the flight thing for you, and I had so many things, you know, I came into college and I was like, I'm going to be a doctor. Okay. Well, you're in one of those classes with like 400 other people and you're all competing for the grade and you really see like, how quickly can you ingest and regurgitate material? And I was like, in my case, not that quickly, (laughs) quickly enough to get into college, but not that quickly to become like a surgeon. And it was like, that's not going to happen. And so it forced you to go to another area. And I think a lot of things are like that in, in, in retrospect. So the whole time you're flying drones and serving there, has the shipping thing begun to percolate yet? Are you day trading stocks or how are you, how is your understanding of this specific thing evolving? Yeah. So that's sort of the, and I don't really talk about this story a lot. So this is a fun podcast. You know, this is a lot more personal than, than I'm used to. It's normally just <laughs> tell me about the tankers, you know, where's the yeah, oil exactly. going? What stocks do I buy? No, 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 no. I'm going, interested Jay. in the whole thing. Uh, that's why the name of the podcast is specific. Yeah, I know. I love it. Things I didn't learn in school. Um, and, 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 you know, it's funny because I think about the things I did learn in school and it, it's not the math and the reading and, and that sort of lessons that stick with me, right? It's the life lessons, it's the mentorship and the coaching. But anyways, totally. um, 
being in pilot training, it was so demanding yes. and so time saturating. And I didn't have a free hour anywhere, <laughs> you know, if, unless I was, you know, maybe on Friday nights at the bar with my squad mates. But, you know, I, I was not writing research or doing any of that stuff. But when I was getting, as I said, revectored um, into the RPA program, uh, there was this great gentleman at Seeking Alpha. His name was Ellie Hoffman. He was their old CEO. Um, sadly, he uh -huh. passed away a few years ago. Um, uh -huh. But he reached out to me and he said, hey, you did some articles in the past. You know, it's been a couple of years, but your articles had great engagement and you have a decent following here on Seeking Alpha. Would you be interested in, in joining our so beta So for listeners who don't know, this research Seeking conference? Alpha is basically a service where writers all over the world can go submit their research and they have different tiers and people can pay for it. And it's basically, I want to talk about this too. It takes what used to be in a brokerage or a bag and it basically breaks it out and it creates a much more clean, in a way, survival of the fittest type of model where the stuff is out there. You can see the calls and the track record and the bag is just a liquidity provider. and The advice is sort of severed out. So what did you first start writing for them? So I, I started writing my, let me think, the summer of like my junior year in undergrad and some of the stuff I wrote originally, like <laughs> about know, what I, I'm probably pretty embarrassed of the stuff I initially wrote. I, I just, we all are. That's okay. Yeah. You know, I just wrote some generalist stuff about like why Microsoft was the best value investment in the world. And, and this was, you know, Hey, I, I look smart now because Microsoft was like 14 bucks or something. What was your trading around value investing and how to think about a stock? Very textbook. Okay. Um, cause I was young. I mean, I was 20 years old. Well, that's why I'm asking. It was very textbook value. Uh, I was always, I guess you could say like a Ben Graham, I wouldn't say disciple, but kind of a Ben Graham, Warren Buffett, sort of Peter Lynch kind of guy, a mixture between value and kind of like what you know and understand. And so that led me to stuff like uh, my, my initial portfolio, and this was $5,000 or something, but my initial portfolio was like Microsoft and some Exxon and Walmart, a lot of blue uh -huh. chips, a lot of stuff I understood very, you know, because I dealt, you know, I had Windows, <laughs> like I wasn't an expert. No, tech is harder to value than certain things, I would say, using that approach. Tech didn't used to be, I mean, if you go back to like 2010, 2011, 2012, tech stuff was uh -huh. cheap. I mean, tech was uh -huh. value, right? It's only been the last few years where we've kind of returned to this sort of dot-com sort of thing where tech is like- Well, I'm, I'm old enough that I was trading in the 1990s, so I'd say we've gone through cycles <laughs> yeah. of it. But anyways, fair enough. Yes. Um, so my initial articles were just- surface level, you know, I applied some ratios and price earnings uh -huh. and CAGR and all that. And, and I realized, thankfully, uh, at that young age that I wasn't really adding any value, uh -huh. right? I, I, it might've been a discussion starter, right? There might've been some good comments and discussion, but if I wanted to add some value, I had to find stocks that nobody else was looking at. Uh -huh. And so I started setting my sites and my screeners on small cap names, you know, 500 million or a billion or less. And I also, and I didn't know any better. So I was looking at ratios, price to book, price to earnings. And so a lot of these shipping names started screening really cheap. They were small caps. They were really cheap. And then I realized that half of them were like shams or scams. Right. <laughs> like there was like infinite dilution. There was this company called Dry Ships that most folks remember, not fondly. <laughs> and, uh, but it was that, but it was that international trade that I was so interested in. And so I think that's where that early story about, you know, the childhood curiosities and, and the passion for international trade became married up to my financial interest. Mm -hmm. And I realized nobody's really writing about these stocks. So maybe I can write about them. 
how did you first of all come up with the screening of these stocks? Did you have some big Microsoft Excel thing and you're pulling stocks through some sort of market cap measure? Or how did you first come to that realization? I hated, I mean, I was like 20 or 21, right? So, so my screening methodology was, I don't even remember. I think it was like Yahoo Finance or Google Finance. Who knows? I mean, it was... It was very, very, very basic. You know, I've, I've been following your research now for a while. And uh, one question that's not clear to me is, so if we, we shift to the, the, the shipping sector, I don't understand why so many of the companies are so small. In other words, there's, a, there's certain industries, plumbing is an example, where consolidation has proven tough. But there's many other industries where they figure out how to do it. And there are these huge supranational organizations do it shipping that does not seem to have happened to. And I look at some of these companies that you talk about and it is, you know, domiciled in Greece and it's family owned and it's like they're really small. And it almost seems like they decided to go public relatively recently for reasons I'm not entirely clear. Yeah. So one of the reasons that's inhibiting, I think, shipping from consolidating, well, there's a few reasons. One of them is that your economics, your scale economics really stop uh, becoming super beneficial once you have maybe like 30 ships. Why is that? So the difference the difference between having, you know, because to charter and operate a fleet, a lot of these different jobs you can outsource to like a third party. Mm-hmm. So you can own a ship and you can outsource some of the back office type stuff. Mm-hmm. So if you're outsourcing, you're paying, you know, say $500 per ship per day for someone to handle the commercial aspects of it. Or you might even third party source your crewing. So hiring your captain and your laborers. And so, and so even that would be a fixed expense per ship per day. So adding, you know, that once you go from like one ship would not be practical and five ships probably not practical. Mm-hmm. But once you get to about 20 or 21, um, the difference in cost per day from going from like 20 ships to 40 ships is, is a little bit. The difference between going from 40 to 50 is like nothing. And so the consolidation economics start to peter out after. I would think that people would want to try to monopolize routes and get bigger control and squeeze up rates and do all those types of things. It doesn't seem to have happened that much. Well, the barriers to entry in shipping, and especially something like a dry bolt carrier or a tanker, some of the more basic types of ships, it's basically a floating bathtub uh-huh. uh, for more or less yep. uh, sophistication. Uh, the barriers to entry are very small. And, and so, you know, you and I, Paul, we could scrape together some money from our friends and we could buy it. We could buy a tanker yep. and we could, we wouldn't be operating. I wouldn't be the captain, right. you know, but we would, we would send it to a third party. And so you and I could get into this game in like a few months. So there's not a lot of barriers to entry. And so you even if you did try to scrape together and, and, and try to build a huge fleet and try to monopolize the market, it takes maybe two years to build a new one, a new ship. Uh-huh. So people would see what you were doing and, and they would kind of front run it or, or do their own little things. So there's not this clear way to, to corner the market in basic vessels. So how did you begin to come up with your methodology for how you think about these things? Because clearly you've thought about them a lot. So you go from Microsoft, then you start screening these things. And then you start really thinking about the boats. Have you ever spent time on boats? Have you have you have you gone and visited the office of these people, or how did your thinking about this evolve? Yeah. So when I first started, absolutely not. I you know I didn't have money or time to visit offices and, and meet management in person and, and things like that. Um, it, my initial way of looking at these companies was very basic. It was you know price to earnings or what's the book value or uh-huh. you know what is the potential for next year's earnings, and it didn't go a whole lot deeper than that. And when I say starting, I mean 2011, 2012, yep. 2013. So this was way back when, right? 
though, though to be clear before we jump into that, in terms of the things that you can buy and invest in, these are more tangible than many other types of things. In other words, if you, if you know, I've read research on, I read research on all sorts of stuff I'm curious about, but like if you read <laughs> research about the cycle in, in microchips, it's so complex, the technology that they're talking about, like you could read an article five times and be like, and then you have to Google various different terms to try to understand what the heck they're talking about. And even then, it's people, it's easy for people to get completely burned by that. Where this is a more limited universe. In other words, there is a boat. It carries stuff. It has contracts to carry that stuff. That contract is at a certain price. And so you it it is a more containable. It's in some ways it resembles a little bit real estate to me in that sense, that there are known cash flows that you can predict on the leases and the structure of what it is. And of course, random stuff could happen. A tanker could sink or there could be a pandemic or something like that. But it's I would describe it on the range of of lots of intangibles to more tangibles. It's further down the list of more tangible stuff. Yeah, no, you're you're absolutely right. And if you have the right data providers and you have the right sources and you know where to look, uh, you can find things a lot faster and, and come to financial conclusions a lot faster than just some guy who you know, oh, I want to buy some tankers today, right? Right. And so there's that there's that sort of, um, I mentioned how the gains from consolidation are great for the first 20 or 30 ships and then they sort of flatline out. Yep. The learning curve in shipping is very steep for the first couple of years, right? Yeah. The difference between someone who's who's been looking at shipping stocks for six months and someone who's been there for three or four years is massive, the difference yes. in understanding. Once you get to, yeah, I mean, I'd say once you get to five or six years, you get a comfort level with the sector and you can make decisions and allocations and trades and, and those things so much, so much faster. And it's it's also a straight sector of the fact that because they're smaller, it's not an area, as one of my friends said, is bombed out by the big systematic managers because they don't want to be in things that are less than a billion dollars because they can't get it out of them. Some of these stocks are really not that liquid. Yes. Or even more beneficial to us is the bigger companies that do sort of automated macro quant type trades or systemic allocations will buy on these weird correlations. And you'll have these days where like every shipping stock is at 5% because, you know, everyone's more bullish on the global economy. Or you'll have these days where every shipping stock is down 5% because on Monday, China said 5% GDP and that wasn't good enough. So you'll have these days where these macro guys are, are swinging the whole sector up and down. And those are just amazing trading and allocation opportunities because there'll be one stock that's five percent down for absolutely no reason, and maybe maybe rates in that sector are actually getting stronger, right? And, right. and so that's what I love about this segment is that there's an opportunity if you really understand what's going on to create alpha over time. And I think you know I would I would argue that we demonstrated that based on our portfolio returns and all that sort of thing. What I describe is 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 your approach now is is a very fact based sort of line by line uh, assessment of basically what are these people likely to earn after all of their expenses and what do they owe and what's that difference and how does that translate to value and how far away is the stock price from that value? I mean, I'm grossly oversimplifying, but it's, I'd say that's, that's, that's what I see in the material. How has that approach shifted over time as you've gotten more familiar with the people and the processes? Yeah, I, I think the overall framework of you know buying stocks that are undervalued, I, I think that stayed the same. Um, I, I think the difference though is you know applying sort of I guess qualitative factors for the trustworthiness of management or the corporate governance style or have I met these guys? Do I trust them? You know, just things like that. The qualitative plays a much bigger role for me today, knowing who I know in the industry and my experiences, than it did when I was starting. 
because when I was starting, I didn't have any of that qualitative background. So it was only what I could read off a balance sheet or an income statement. Uh And so that's how people get suckered into these chamois stocks, like like dry ships is one of them. But there's several stocks on the market today in shipping that we don't even cover Mm -hmm. in our research business because they are just designed to to, uh, take your money, more or less. And, and so that is really, I think, was changed, Paul, in the last five, six, seven, eight years as I've gained more and more knowledge. It's the intangibles. It's, it's knowing all the different CEOs and CFOs, knowing who's a little bit sharper, mm-hmm. knowing who has, I would say, more integrity, knowing which balance sheets are most, knowing the details, right, of the covenants and, and things like that, that you don't just gain from doing a financial screening search. You might not just gain from reading the financials. I think that's been the biggest change, Paul. I think the overall valuation framework is 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 pretty consistent over the last 10 years. That's that's Buffett-like, though, in the sense that he plates his great value on if he sits down to the person, is it a reasonable person, as opposed to somebody who's a little bit skeezy. Um, what are the people like who are in this business who are running these companies? Like, I see their names on the Bloomberg things and read them in the investor presentations, but I haven't met any of these people. I mean, what are the types of... They seem... They they seem intriguing. They seem like they could be, you know, some of them could make for good characters in a novel type of thing. But yeah, well, <laughs> that's a bit of a loaded question. But there, there's different buckets you you can put these folks in, and and I think just really broadly speaking, I'm not going to you know name and shame specific companies, but you know, one bucket is sort of your more modern corporate governance approach, where you have sort uh-huh. of the standard CEO, CFO, very financial minded, they're very much into the spreadsheets, and, and, and that's a more newer occurrence in shipping. That is something that is that has happened in the last, I would say, 20 years. And, and that is for uh-huh. the better because the corporate governance is stronger. And, and that's that's one bucket. And most of the, not so much US listed, because a lot of these companies are US listed, but the US headquartered firms are mostly mm-hmm. into that bucket. And and, mm-hmm. and and that's a good thing. And then another bucket you have is sort of your dynasty, right? Your historical ship yeah. owners who have been in the business for like 100, 150, 200 years. And those folks are all across the spectrum because some of them are super, super competent, very well dialed in. They operate with integrity. They have a strong track record. And, you know, some of those folks are, you know, fourth generation, hand me down, you know, never had to work in my life. Inherited wealth type yeah, of thing. Yeah. So. And do you go out to like Greece and Cyprus and meet with these people on their own territory or, or not so much? Not deliberately. I, I was actually in Athens uh, a few months ago on a trip and I, I met with a few companies just because I was already there. But where I meet with most of these companies is at some of the annual conferences. Uh-huh. So Marine Money is, is the biggest one that's in New York City. Uh, and there's another one called Capital Link, which is a good uh, investor series conference. Everything now, it has been the one benefit to this whole pandemic world is that virtual meetings are so much more accessible now. Yeah. It used to be, I mean, pulling, it would be pulling teeth in 2017 or 2018 to arrange like a Zoom call with the company or a board member. Mm-hmm. Now it's like, you know, of course we'll have a Zoom call with you, right? And so that has been the one benefit of, of the, the last few years is, you know, I have, you know, CEO or CFO contact information on every company we follow. And with very few exceptions, you know, I can get a response in 24 hours on any sort of reasonable question or something like that. And so we host an interview series. Uh, we do it about twice a year. Um, and we try to invite the top companies from each segment to talk about their industry. And that, that that's an example of something we've been able to do recently in the last yeah. couple of years because of everyone's more comfortable being virtual and, and by nature of like, they know who I am. Right. 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 And, and I've been involved in the industry for 10 years and they know that I'm going to ask, I'm going to ask tough questions. Right. But I'm not going to try to like, 
you know, trick them or like make them look stupid. Right. right. I mean, it's a, it's a professional podcast, it's right. a professional interview. Hopefully you're not going to make me look stupid, but no, <laughs> no, 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 I have no interest in that. Yeah. yeah. The, the, um, um, okay. That's really interesting. Describe a little bit. So then you, you get this idea, the guy comes out to have you do Seeky Alpha. So you never really, so like you began this business, which is a pretty incredible business. So you never really worked for like a traditional sell side research type of firm or buy side type of thing. You basically grew this out of the CE Alpha platform. Is that right? That's absolutely true. Um, no formal um, financial employment, anything like that. And, and I couldn't because I was, was in the Air Force. And so this thing started. Oh, right, as, right, right. Yeah. And, this and thing the Air Force is okay with you doing that? So it's a funny story. Um, when I launched this business, this was I was a cadet at the Air Force Academy, and my immediate commander, uh, who oversaw our squadron of students, he thought this was like the coolest thing ever. He's like, "Oh yeah, one of my cadets is like writing about stocks. Like, good for him. That's He's got awesome. A, you know, pat on the head." But you know, it, but I had to get permission from like the high, you know, the chain of command. Yeah. And so I, I asked for permission to write on Seeking Alpha. And they said, hey, we think this is great that you have this hobby that you're interested in. You can continue doing that, but you can't earn money from it. <laughs> so I, I had to write pro bono. Um, so I wrote all my initial articles. I mean, I think the first couple, you know, were paid because I didn't know any better. Or I didn't. Know but after that, I wrote for like a year. It was like all pro bono and it was just totally, you know, pro bono. And then after I graduated, I started the sort of research platform as a hobby. Mm-hmm. And it was just it was it was just a hobby. And a and passion. It yeah, the passion, right? And, and it didn't turn into what one man's hobby is another man's business. Yeah. Right. It's like like woodworking, right? You sell furniture. But it didn't really turn into, I would say, a legitimate business um, for many, many years later. Uh-huh. And it was it was slow. I mean, we built this thing stick by stick, yeah. stone by stone. And, you know, growing the team was really what enabled us to break out and do all this sort of stuff. My day-to-day now is a lot less, you know, financial modeling and, and spreadsheets and a lot more, you know, calling the CEOs, calling the CFOs, doing a podcast like I'm doing with you, uh-huh. uh, focusing on my own academics. Yeah. And we have a team of six people that handle a lot of the other type of things. Uh-huh. And so as your as your thinking is evolving, are are mom and dad still alive? Are they they around? They are. Um, they're a little bit older. They they had me when they were older, so they're in their 70s now. And what did they make of this whole evolution of yours going from the, you know, the kids staring at the, uh, the train tracks and stuff like that to this type of thing? Are they curious? Are they blown away? Are they skeptical? What do they think? No, I, I think they're just, they're happy for me that I have this passion. And, and my dad, he started his own business, the plumbing contracting. Yeah. He started that in his, uh, let me think, it was basically 40 when he uh-huh. started his own business. So he's always been kind of frugal and small business minded. So I think he thought it was cool that his son had his own little tiny small business. And my parents, though, they, you know, they never owned a stock. I might be misquoting, but I, I don't think they've ever owned a stock in their entire lives. Yep. Um, and so that they were, I was raised to be skeptical of the financial institutions and, you know, CDs and saving bonds were like the way to go. And, and so, you know, I think, you know, they think good for me and I, I think they're proud of me and, and the work we've done. But, you know, I think they're honestly probably more proud of being an officer in the Air Force and, and you know, pursuing a life of integrity. And I, I think they're more into that than they are with like how much money I've made or anything like that. thinking about the stuff and then you begin trading and then you actually must you some of it must go through a little bit of an intoxicating we can talk about some of the, the highs and lows but the um uh there when you begin to see that some of this analysis works and you put your money behind it and all of a sudden you could earn more in 
if the trading's working well in a short period of time than you can on your Air Force salary, there must have been a moment like kind of like, oh, oh my goodness, this thing is powerful. No, it's a, it's a good question. Um, I guess I was never really, I never really expected to earn a, a ton of money from the research side of things. I always just thought it was sort of like a hobby and sort yep. of an education. And so when it became, I guess, less of a hobby and, and less of a passion, as you said, and more of an actual business, that was kind of exciting. Um, to think of myself as like a business owner and, and yeah, to think of myself of as, you know, a founder as opposed to like, you know, just a, a blogger. Right. Yeah. Um, but it was less about, it was less about the financial um, transition and, and what the research income or the trading income was. And it was more about, you know, how widespread our work was, or if people in the industry knew who our company was. I think the first time I was invited to speak on a panel um, at Marine Money was kind of a you know, oh wow! Like, how many years into it was that when that happened? Oh man, that must have been. I think that was summer of 2018, and so that was the first big, I guess, like breakout of, um, you know, oh wow! Like we're really making some waves in the industry and like yeah, connecting with yeah, people. and and that was a game changer too because I went to this conference and I met 20, I think I had 25 meetings at that conference, and each one was either the CEO or the CFO. And so I met so many com- uh, companies and, and once they put a face to a name, they're like, oh yeah, I saw your article on Seeking Alpha. Like, and, and they realized yeah, that I was, you know, so and I guess they just realized that they were comfortable talking to me and, and that having that access thereafter was a game changer. So I think you could say before and after 2018, 2019 was kind of that turning point where this became a more like full-fledged, legitimate research platform as opposed to just kind of a hobby. Explain to the people who are more generalists what the heck happened to the supply chain during COVID? Because I would say that is an example where this goes from really interesting stock research to something that affects people's day to day. Yeah, no, absolutely. Thanks, Paul. Um, yeah, so with container ships, and those are the ships that carry the little 20 foot or 40 foot boxes, the boxes you see on yep. trucks and trains and that forth, they're called container ships. And that market exploded upwards after China joined the WTO in, in 2001. And so that market had a ton of growth into up into the global financial crisis, even after 2008, even after Lehman Brothers, that industry recovered very fast because global trade was exploding. And the U.S. ports and parts of Europe, but really the United States ports were always kind of behind the curve. They were using outdated equipment, outdated technology. They didn't invest enough in port infrastructure and modernization. So they were always hanging on by like the skin of their teeth uh, to keep up with this growing global trade and, and levels of, of exports and volumes. And so this was sort of like a festering issue for many, many years. But, mm-hmm. you know, you're operating at 95, 96, 97% capacity, and you're doing this just-in-time inventory, right? A box comes in, it goes to Amazon, it right. goes to your house, and everything was just like this perfectly well-oiled machine. And nobody noticed, right, the rot in the machine or the rust on the gears. And then with COVID, you had this big shutdown, right, for three months all the ports were panicking or they were sending their workers home or they were only running one line instead of three or one dock instead of two or whatnot. So you had all these ships starting to get backed up in the ports. And then the government, of course, as we know, decided to stimulate the economy and mail everybody money. And people were saving, but they weren't commuting. So they're saving money on gas. Some people had rent relief, right? So there was all sorts of money just floating around in the economy. And everybody went to amazon.com and just ordered the hell out of everything. And everybody said, I'm working from home. I need a home office. I need a new monitor. I need a new desk. I need a new chair. I I want a more comfortable bed. And so like everybody just went out and ordered tons of stuff, right? And and everybody kind of understands this narrative, I think. But 
Think about what happens when you have a machine that's running at 95 to 98% capacity, well-oiled machine, and you jam everything up for three months, and then you try to jam unprecedented volumes through it. It breaks everything. And one thing breaks, another thing breaks. At one point, I think there was like 14 bottlenecks in the container ship industry. And thankfully, because of our research, we realized right away, like, what was going on in terms, I didn't know it was going to be as crazy as it got. I didn't predict, I didn't predict it was going to go as crazy as it did. But way back in August of 2020, we started flagging the container ship market. We said, this has been dead money for six years, but there's no supply of new ships on the market. And the rates are poised to explode upwards because of all this congestion, because of all these things going on, because of all this unprecedented consumer demand. And so, you know, connecting the dots here, that's what enabled us to get into companies like Denouse Corp, DAC at $5 a share, right? And and that stock went to 107 and now it's like 60. And then we got, we bought it at five. So that's an example of that, of all that little research and knowledge all coming together with a global event. To put your policy back hat on, were you like, did you try to share any of your research with the White House or anything when you were back at the council? Like, like, hey guys, I could see what's happening with this chain and this is going to be a disaster. Well, when I was at the council, I was, this was in uh, the summer of 2013. So I wasn't quite as, I I wasn't as well connected or I didn't know as much back then. Um, Nowadays, I would love to, but I don't think anybody in the policy circle I focus on such a small financial niche that I don't think anybody, you know, in government probably has any idea who I am or the research that I do. So, yeah, I would if I could. Talk about China for a little bit, because that was an area where, you know, before I created Still Press, I spent a lot of a lot of time in my career. And the ebbs and flows of their economy have a huge impact on the demand for all of this, even though it's the second biggest economy in the world. Because of the rate of change and the volatility, it's actually responsible for more of the shifts in the global growth than the U.S. How do you think about, how do you try to make sense of that economy, given that it's opaque, that it's command and control, that it's highly politicized? And how do you, how do you deal with that in your forecasts of demand. So whether they have a housing crash or a slow housing burn or whether it all goes up, it depends on a series of decisions. It's kind of tough to anticipate. That is very, very difficult to anticipate. And and that's true of anything in shipping. The supply side is really where our bread Interesting. lies. That is where we're able to predict um, you know, shortages in vessels. We're able to predict gluts. Not, when I say predict, I mean, I, I guess forecast, right? We're not always right. Um, but we're able to understand the supply side extremely well. The demand side, no matter which country. I mean, obviously China is the most opaque. I, I agree with you on that. But even like U.S. diesel demand or jet fuel demand, even that can be volatile, or even that can be seasonal or you know cyclical, or there can be a month of refinery closures or refinery maintenance. Or so demand side is always the most difficult. And, and we have a full time person. His name mm-hmm. is James Catlin, and he handled all the shipping macro stuff. And he is way smarter than I am on all of those topics. So I, I think you know I, I wouldn't want to you know. Put my foot in my mouth too much. Um, but I would say that our specialty is the supply side. And I, I've had a thesis for many years, six, seven, eight years, that you can do really well in shipping if you can dominate the supply side and be mm-hmm. reasonable mm-hmm. on demand side. Right. right. Makes sense. You understand if demand is 4%, how are things going to go? If demand is 3%, how are things going to go? But you, 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 you find your really good supply setups and you bet heavily on those. And then if demand peters out, you only lose a little bit. If demand exceeds, you nail it out of the park. And that's how we've all, we don't really try to, look, black, um, 
Blackstone and Bridgewater and Goldman Sachs, they're all over there trying to estimate Chinese growth. Like, why would I know that better than they would? So what do you make, and maybe it's hard to have perspective. So if I think about my career, I worked for a news organization that I worked for, Southside Bag, that I worked for Bridgewater. It was all institutions, institutions, institutions. And this world that you're a part of was literally just developing at that time. And now it feels like the tech, talk if you will about how your perception is of the financial industry is. Like the fact that you could exist and have a platform and have a business, I genuinely don't think it would have been really as easy to do 20 years ago. So it's had a transformative effect over the financial industry. I'm wondering what your perspective is on that. And then by the same token, apply that if you that same framework, if you would, to shipping. Because shipping, in some ways, it seems like it can change a lot. You can get tracks. Some of these ships that you've recommended, I've pulled up the thing, and you can actually track where the ships are all over the world. And the geek in me finds that that's pretty cool. But at the end of the day, you're developing a physical good. It's like in a metal boat that needs to go over an ocean, so there's only so much it could change. So if you could talk about each a little bit, like how you view the financial industry from your vantage point, and then how tech, that same technology is changing shipping. Yeah, so I, I think Value Investors Edge and, and myself, both as an individual and also as our research business, is sort of a validation of that initial sort of seeking alpha model or thesis where you can have crowdsourced research that, you know, the cream will rise to the top and, and some folks will break out and they're not suppressing ideas. And, you know, anyone, I think you had to be 18 or I don't remember the exact initial rules. There's an editor, right? You, you can't write anything, but as long as you can publish something coherent, <laughs> and everyone's standards of coherence yep. are different, right? But as long as you can publish something semi-professional, semi-coherent, anybody can write on Seeking Alpha about any stock whatsoever. And so I think that model was just groundbreaking. And I, and I don't think that was available until, I think Seeking Alpha launched in like 2006 or seven, and I joined it in 2011. So I was still really early on, on in the website. And I think Motley Fool was another one and it kind of pioneered that. Um, the other thing that's different is in our model is that my team and, and myself, we can own and we can trade right. these positions. And so our incentives in, in the financial industry, that's viewed like- That's a compliance uh, problem. Yeah, exactly. Right. And, and they view that as like this compliance issue and this risk. Now it could be if it's not disclosed properly. Right. Right. If I'm saying buy, 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 and I'm like shorting it, you know, or like, you know, and that could be an issue, right? If someone's like just- has no integrity, right? Yeah. But in terms of alignment, most folks are actually more comfortable with a research analyst who has skin in the game. Of course. And they know that like, if that idea goes to the races, Jay Minsmeyer is yeah. going to make money too. But they know that if that, that idea sucks, Jay Minsmeyer made $50 on an article, but he lost 10,000 on his stocks, <laughs> you know? So, so yeah. I think more people are actually comfortable with that sort of alignment of like, we're both in this stock together and I'm sharing my research with you. But the traditional finance industry is wired completely different. Totally. I mean, all your incentives are based on commissions. All your incentives are based on uh, inve uh, investment banking deals with the companies. And so it's like the alignment, they, they, they fix this alignment issue where you can't own or trade the company because there could be a risk. And I agree, there could be a risk. But they have all these other risks, like investment banking deals, which I, I, it's just a weird industry. So I don't want to go off on, on a tangent too far. So I totally agree with that. And I'm also, I'm really, you know, I was in the corporate world for a long time and I've been out on my own for a couple of years and, and sort of gradually seeing how powerful this stuff is. The, the, the weirdest thing for me about dealing with it is, is it's very hard to tell who you're dealing with. 
Mm-hmm. In other words, if you deal with an analyst at J.P. Morgan, there may be layers of compliance rules and invest, investment banking, all those incentives. Everything you're saying is true. But it's like there's a person, there's a resume, da, 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 that type of thing. Mm-hmm. And like on my Substack stuff, people reach out to me and they are – actually, generally, everybody who's reached out to me has been great, curious, polite, thoughtful people. But mm-hmm. I have no idea who they are. I don't even know what countries or time zones they're in or something like that. And sometimes I'll ask them, like, where'd you hear about this? And they're like, oh, this friend forwarded me a Twitter feed or, oh, I read one of your books and I jumped on. And so for me, having been in that corporate world for a long time and now sort of out of this thing, it's a little unfamiliar. And that aspect of the anonymity of it, like on Twitter, people don't use their name. And I know a lot of people think this is cool. It mm. drives me crazy. I'm like, I'm Paul. You can see exactly yes. who I am. Go to my website. You'll see all my work and my articles. It's super transparent. Right. How do you, what do you think of that? How do you deal with it? Yeah. Well, that, I, I guess I would say that is the one thing I do have in common with the more uh, staid traditional financial system is like my name and my picture are out there and yep. people know where I go to school at and people know generally where I live, maybe not my address, but like, yeah. I'm not an anonymous person. You know, I'm not like the roaring kitty guy <laughs> on GameStop, you yeah. know, like they, they know who I am and, and where I live more or less. And, and, and so my, you know, integrity and reputation is extremely important to me. Um, in terms of dealing with other people, right? Like just interactions, whether or not they're customers or whether or not they're just people. For the most part, um, I've had a great experience with other people. I've had very few trolls um, and I've, I've made whoppers. I've had some mistakes. I've had some bad calls. And for the most part, I would say 99% plus of the folks who pay for the research are beyond professional. I mean, it is a fantastic experience. Um, I would say the people that don't pay, that they're like on free Twitter that's where you get a little bit more of the weirdos um, or the folks that are like hound you. So putting up the paywall to why deals with it. Are you allowed to say how many clients you have? You know, maybe not the exact number, but we have more than 500 in our in our research group. The question about technology and shipping. How is technology changing shipping? Mm-hmm. So operationally uh, in so many ways, but I, I first will speak to what I'm you know qualified to, and that is in, in the financial analysis of the shipping companies, uh, platforms which do the GPS tracking of these vessels have completely changed the yep. game in understanding, you know, positioning lists and where the ships are at and which basins are oversupplied and undersupplied. Um, having access to data providers like Vessels Value or Clarkson Shipping Intelligence, and we subscribe to those and, and those are uh, fairly expensive, well worth it for me, but fairly expensive platforms. Um, having those data aggregators out there makes my job um, so much smoother. And those, those data aggregators didn't really exist 20 years ago. Vessels Value, they started up, I think, in 2010, and I've been working with them since 2013, so I've been with them since the early days, and you know that has changed my game. I grew up with it, so I guess I was kind of ignorant that this was a change, yeah. but I grew up with yep. this change and with this data availability, and that's it would have been so much harder for me, Paul, if, if we were in you know 1995 um, to get this sort of data, and by the way, where would I share it with? Who would listen? Where would they sign up at? I'd have to like manually mail things to people in them, you know. Um, it'd be like one of those old school investment uh, 
uh, journals <laughs> where you get it a week yeah. later. No, that but that was I mean you're talking about my career. That was the world I mean, we used to the uh, I wrote I started off in Foreign Exchange. We used to fax our report. <laughs> yes, indeed. And it was a big deal where we could find software that allowed to do the fax as opposed to actually having to Yeah, manually input all your data. It was and I when I first started I had to manually input all the rates and all the data and thank God I don't have to do that anymore. There's these amazing things called APIs and they just change your life. Um, in terms of the shipping industry itself, the biggest technological changes are being forced, I would say forced upon us, and, and this is a good thing, but forced upon us due to the focus on climate change and reducing carbon emissions. IMO, International Maritime Organization, all these regulations that are coming out are forcing this upon us. And, and that's because you need to track how fast the vessel's going, how efficient the trading patterns are. And because these companies are starting to care more and more about, they never really cared about fuel efficiency is much beyond the price, right? How much is fuel, right? And so there are some general economics to it, but it was more or less like rates are good, hit the throttle, right? <laughs> rates are bad. And there wasn't a lot of, you know, real heavy logic behind it. Well, now that you have to track all your carbon emissions and things like that, um, you have to have really good software to do that. Right. You have to have good monitoring software and you have to have good management teams. So I think we talked about consolidation earlier and I kind of poo-pooed yeah. it and said, well, you know, there's not a lot of scale. I think these upcoming regulations and the differences in the financial systems are going to force a lot of consolidation between now and 2030, 2040, especially 2050. Interesting. I think if you and I get together, Paul, I think if you and I get together in 10 years or 15 years, we're going to see a far more consolidated dry bulk and tanker sector because the the, the regulations, the compliance, the vessel tracking, um, by the way, interest rates are going up. It's harder to get a loan. There's KYC, right? Know your client. Right. There's sanctions. Like all these things are going to come together and it's going to force a level of consolidation upon a lot of these industries. Yep. And I would imagine that a lot of, we didn't talk about it that much, you've mentioned it in a few reports, but a lot of, there is, there must be a dark side shipping as well. I was in uh, Chile recently and the northern part of the country, they're having a big problem with drug trafficking. And one of the things that's attracted them is Chile, as you know, exports a lot of commodities. And so there's a huge amount of ship traffic coming back and forth there. And what the drug traffickers are saying, listen, as opposed to trying to get it in through Mexico, maybe we can slide it in through some of these boats and get it. And so I'm sure that that compliance stuff is going to be really, I mean, no ship owner would want to be associated with that. But corruption's corruption. It happens all over the world. Yeah. And of course, the way the shipping is so globalized, I mean, the executive team, say they're in Italy or Greece or something, I mean, they have a thousand employees up and down the chain too. Exactly. So, you know, and what level is the corruption at? We don't know. Um, but I, I think, you know, there's probably some folks in like the U.S. Coast Guard that just have fantastic stories about busts they've done or, or customs agencies. I'm sure the Coast Guard and the customs agencies have a lot of crazy stories to tell you. I'm sure the, the, the volume of the stuff relative to what they what they can capture. So now you're getting uh, you're getting a Ph.D. What's what's next for you? What are you what's what's your game plan from here? Um, so my, my time is running out here. I'm actually on a fellowship. It's a three year fellowship and it's actually sponsored by the Air Force. And so they have been so great to me. That's um, awesome. They, yeah, they paid for my undergrad. They, they sponsored my master's degree. They have sponsored this PhD. But, you know, in exchange, nothing in life is free, right? So in exchange for sponsoring my PhD, I will be staying in active duty and, and going to serve with the Air Force for a few more years and sort of, um, you know, paying that off. And, and that's great. I, uh -huh. I love the Air Force. I, you know, I have such a great time. It's been such a good experience in my life. Uh, but that's why you asked me that question earlier about, you know, the financial point, right? At what point was yeah. I like, well, I'm making more money doing this than I can make in the Air Force. 
Yeah, Paul, that, that, that point got crossed many, many years ago. Uh-huh. Um, but there's more to life, right? And yes, there the is. experiences and the relationships and, and the things that we can do, um, the impact that I can have. Um, you know, being the world's, even if, I'm, even if I could say, like, we are the world's best at, like, analyzing maritime shipping stocks. Like, that has a ceiling, right? And, you know, there's other ways that, you know, as a citizen, you, know, you can give back and you can have an impact on your country. So, you know, my story, hopefully, right, my story in the Air Force is, is still ongoing uh-huh. and that's not done yet. So this summer, I will hopefully graduate. I have to defend, of course, my dissertation, um, but hopefully this summer I will graduate and then we'll see where the Air Force sends me. Got it. So the name of the podcast is Things I Did Learn at School. I ask every single guest this question. And obviously, you've had a lot of schooling. Anything along the, and and by the way, I, we've had I don't know how many guests. I think we're up to fifty guests or something like that. Every single person has answered the question differently, which I find fascinating in and of itself. So, thing or things are the biggest that you've learned that you didn't learn in school. I think the two things that have stuck with me the most is in the Air Force, our number one core value is integrity first. Uh-huh. I think always maintaining the long term view of nothing matters more than your integrity and your reputation. I think that's really stuck with me throughout all of it. And the second one is not an Air Force core value, uh, but just the perseverance and the motivation. And I think, you know, going through pilot training, I shared that story with you. I haven't shared that story publicly with with very many people. Um, It's a great story. That that opened up this whole new door. Yeah, of course. Expanding this this business. Because if I would have graduated and went to F-16, say I got F-16 slot, I went to go fly F-16s. Valley Investor's Edge probably wouldn't exist. It's such a classic story. I've heard versions of that so many times. And that is the way it works, that those types of things that can be crushing, it actually forces a creativity and improvisation that wasn't there. Thanks so much for coming on Things I Didn't Learn at School. Paul, I really enjoyed this, this conversation. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you for listening to today's episode. We're genuinely touched by all the support. If you want to see more of this type of content, sign up to my Substack on paulpodolsky.com and become a paid subscriber that helps support the team. Uh, you could also submit a review to Apple Podcasts, which draws other listeners to this. If you have any questions, you can email me, paul at paulpodolsky.com and follow me on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn. Thanks so much. Today's podcast was produced and edited by Dave Manahan.